Welcome to By the Bywater, a podcast on the Megaphonic Network. I'm Ned Raggett. I'm Oriana Schwint. I'm Jared Pekachak. And we're here to talk about all things J.R.R. Tolkien. His work, his inspirations and impact, creative interpretations in other media, languages, lore, ripoffs, parodies, anything we think is interesting. Thanks for joining us. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the sixth episode of By the Bywater. It is great to have you with us. Uh, we're all here just enjoying the fact that it's mid-September and not, I don't know, midsummer and burning to death quite so much. Uh, but we'll see. Although Oriana and I were, of course, exchanging weather stuff. Let's not talk about the weather, however, this time. Let's talk about other things um, and all that. So uh, how, how, how does the end of the year planning kick in for you guys? Because, I mean, I've already figured out sort of like, okay, I've got a family. There's a family vacation that's coming up and then there's other things uh, do, do your schedules get accelerated as, as we hit september or what what happens with you all <sighs> and maybe the sigh says it all <laughs> oh i'm actually tabling at a convention this fall so october oh. is going to be fun what which convention and where geek girl con in seattle hmm. what dates um Good question. <laughs> um, November, I want to say, 16th and 17th. Oh, okay. That is good to know. Well, I just wanted to say, before we plunge into things, uh, we have only a short uh, news item to talk about this time, uh, but really we want to say to all listeners out there, uh, thank you, because we've been getting a lot more comments uh, since the last episode dropped that I've seen in the wild, for lack of a better term. It's uh, It's been really nice to see uh, that uh, people are saying that they've, like, feedback saying that they really enjoy the podcast, how we do things, uh, just responding to stuff we brought up. That is uh, really wonderful. I know uh, one person on Twitter out there, Karen Cross, really loved Oriana's uh, description of Celeborn as a purse. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think we have some, you know, new merch right there, Celeborn converted into a purse or Celeborn on a purse. That could be a representative, I'm sure. So, and all that. But uh, we just wanted to thank everybody. Uh, I don't know if you guys wanted anything more to add to that uh, among top of the other comments that we've seen already. Yeah, that's great. Please let us know. I crave uh, attention and adulation, so please. Positive reinforcement. Please keep it coming. All I want is for everyone to like me all the time to rip off of John Mulaney. <laughs> I knew I'd heard that somewhere. Yep, yep. <laughs> it'll, it'll be a good thing. And uh, we do want to emphasize, uh, this is something we, you know, we keep mentioning on and off, there is our show contact information uh, and the uh, in the outro to each episode if you want to reach out to us. And we do want to emphasize again, uh, ratings uh, for the show on, uh, on iTunes or elsewhere, uh, always, always welcome. And uh, by all means, just let us know uh, if there's anything in particular you think could be a fun topic. There's certainly things we can get ideas from for that. And, of course, there's the Patreon for Megaphonic.fm if you would like to support the show and join in the discussions that happen uh, through the uh, through the Slack that we maintain for Patreon members. Uh, again, you'd be more than welcome. So uh, there's all we have to say about that. But right now, let's just plunge into uh, this episode's edition of the news. So, Jared, take it away. So the past few weeks have been pretty quiet on uh, the Tolkien Estate and Amazon adaptation fronts, except for one thing. Um, Variety reported that Will Poulter has been cast for a role in the you know the adaptation. Um, he's a young actor from the UK who's been in a variety of genre efforts, including Eustace in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and a role in the Maze Runner films, which I haven't seen. 
more recently, he was in uh, Black Mirror Bandersnatch, that, you know, choose your own path thing on Netflix, and um, Midsommar. So there's no word about what he's playing, uh, not even a character name, but he looks like a school bully to me. So <laughs> that's like, is he an elf? I could see, I could see some kind of an elf, elvish bend to his feature. I, like, I don't know. Maybe, uh, I don't know. I don't the know. eyebrows? The eyebrows are a little elvish, I guess. <laughs> There's some pretty fierce eyebrows. That is that is true. Very important. He does seem to, I mean, maybe backing up a bit, this, unlike uh, Markella Kavanaugh, who, again, has been announced to play, you know, allegedly someone named Tyra, um, whoever uh, whoever Will Poultice is uh, playing uh, and all that, uh, a Poulter, Poultice, I'm confusing the names. Yeah. <laughs> we, were, we were joking, we were joking earlier when the news broke that the, uh, that uh, you know, Poulter fans would be called Poultices because, I mean, why not? <laughs> so, <laughs> so we'll run with that. Will Poulter is that, uh, you know, having caught him here and there in various things, I mean, I'd completely forgotten about the fact that he was Eustace, for instance, yeah. until I was checking stuff. It's sort of like, okay, I, he seems like an accomplished enough English, I don't want to say journeyman actor. He's still kind of young to be sort of like determined like what the what the level is. But, you know, he's, he's done stuff. And on the one hand, I think that's, you know, good. And I think actually working with... Uh, Yes, I said actually. Actually, I think I think working with uh, with relative unknowns is kind of good in the sense of it's not so much the stars as it is the uh, the the overall story. And there's a lot you can do with that. And of course, we've seen how ensemble casting for adaptations has worked very well indeed. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's a weird. It's hard to say. I mean, it's interesting that this news is sort of coming out in dribs and drabs, but it kind of would be nice to get a, a little more focused by now. Maybe it's still too early days. I don't know. What do you think, Oriana? Should we be surprised by the fact that we haven't heard still now that much? Or I am a little surprised with a production of this size that they haven't, that it hasn't been a concerted rollout of kind of big announcements because when you have like I know that a lot of this has been breaking because of you know presumably agents are leaking information to to try and get better contracts or or you know that that sort of thing that whole game is clearly what's being played but because we have no information about the story or the characters it's difficult to make any kind of and, you know, who cares? Why does anyone need our judgment, I guess, <laughs> mm -hmm. on on how well an actor could fit a role, possibly? But it, it is a little intriguing to me that we have had so little information come out, you know, even in the midst of casting. It's a little surprising to me, you know, mm -hmm. and it's... But what are you going to do, I guess? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we had a we had a joke in private chat a couple of weeks ago that the whole idea of what this series is about is a complete head fake. And this is going to be something more like said in Second Age Bree. It'll be like Deadwood <laughs> or Gunsmoke or something like that. And just they'll, everyone will be the regular cast of characters around the proto-prancing pony. And meanwhile, people will just come through and do cameo roles and everyone else is just sitting there. So Which prob <laughs> yes, I go. want. I want that. Yeah, I want that, too. <laughs> it's not going to happen, but I want that <laughs> deadwood but middle earth chetwood it's right there the chetwood the chetwood yes chetwood oh my god you see why aren't we the writing team why? yeah wait well we don't even need to like they can do the the you know whatever they are doing now but as a spin-off hello we're right here <laughs> Like yeah, special web series only. I mean, you know, we've we've got it, we've got it set out for you. You know, contact us. <laughs> yeah, you could do. I'd like little, you know, fifteen minute. Who doesn't love a fifteen minute episode of uh, non television? 
set the chat with the second age. Oh, God. What have we gotten ourselves into? Very specific audience, but they're out there. So, <laughs> right. um, so we'll, we'll, yeah. <laughs> so in any event, that's that's all the news we had. I honestly thought, you know, as we mentioned last time, we'd have a, a lot more news by now, but looks like it's still sort of slow going. But we'll see what the next uh, month brings us. Uh, so for the moment, we'll just wrap up there. And it's now time to move on. Jared takes the lead this episode. It's his turn to lead talk on the main topic. <laughs> talk about friendship yay friends um, yay <laughs> which i think i mean i think is a really interesting aspect of tolkien's you know whole legendarium i mean they're all about a lot of things but a lot of the events that happen are sort of defined and moved by male friendships but in a really interesting way i want to say this is not a shipping episode <laughs> <laughs> Not that we couldn't do one, but um, I think you can have perfectly valid romantic interpretations of the various uh, male relationships, but I think it's really sort of rich and interesting to read them solely as what the author says they are, because it's such a beautiful picture of these sensitive, emotionally open friendships that you don't get from a lot of other media, other franchises, other whatever. Let's take Sam and Frodo as an example. At the beginning, I think it's fascinating how they're pretty much just master and servant. Like in the early Hobbiton chapters, Merry and Pippin are given way more prominence. They're his friends, and Sam's just like his gardener. They're sort of affectionate, like jokey relationship, but that's it. And then by the end, they're pretty much on equal footing. And to me, there's this kind of the defining relationship of the book. Like it doesn't even end until they are separated. And there's this recurring theme throughout Tolkien's work where these, you know, these huge deeds are done from romantic love, as we've talked about with Baron and Luthien and all that. But a lot of the others are just like, this guy's my friend. I'm going to rescue him from Morgoth or carry him up a volcano or make sure he gets enough water. And this sort of emotional fulfillment that they find in each other is really lovely to me. But to me, a lot of um, portrayals of male-male friendship in modern media kind of revolve around the distance between them. Like, um, if you look at Marvel, for example, and I do like Marvel, I'm not picking on Marvel, but male friendships are sort of pulled apart, like, you know, Bucky and Captain America, or they argue with each other about pointless things and joke with each other sarcastically, and they make big decisions very seriously with each other, but there's not that same kind of emotional attachment there. And I know Marvel is doing something very different from Tolkien. <laughs> But it just, it lacks that sense of these people actually enjoying being around each other. There's like hangout scenes, but that's it. Like, it's not, not the same. And I do like the way Tolkien does it. And it is also sort of fascinating to me that a lot of these characters are together because they swore an oath or because Gandalf is punishing them. <laughs> like Sam, like they're like, like, say, I don't know, students at Oxford forming a club or soldiers going off to war. Um, so they kind of they make of that this these beautiful friendships and not to like monologue for too long so i'm going to sort of wind up for a second so you guys can talk but to me one of the most important lines in all of tolkien and we all know it it's famous is when frodo and sam are on mount doom everything is over and the mountain is coming apart around them and frodo just says i'm glad you're here with me and that's I'm sorry, I'm getting a little emotional I now. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's not like, it's a way of saying I love you in a very friendship sort of way. <laughs> but like, not, I but think, not in a not gay kind of way. No, 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 no. 
Um, I just think to to me, if you if you're like a diehard Frodo Sam shipper, <laughs> <laughs> to say that only romantic love mm-hmm. is capable of this kind of grand epic mm-hmm. friendship, this grand epic attachment, this emotion that drives you, is to sort of diminish both friendship and romance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's. I mean, you could read it as romantic. I definitely don't not. <laughs> <laughs> and it's or with Legolas and Gimli, I don't know. Yeah, okay. Um, again, not a shipping episode, but <laughs> I just like that you can read it on multiple levels. And one of those levels is just, man, they're such good friends that they would like die for each other, give each other the last sips of water, or like carry each other up mountains. And it doesn't have to be anything other than that. Anyway, yeah, I'm glad you're here with me. <laughs> <laughs> We're happy to be here. So, Oriana, you. Uh... Well, that's, you know, I, both of you guys, I feel like I, I'm much more interested in your perspectives as a straight dude and a gay dude. Uh, you know, I have known, mm. like, that's, that is one thing that I like, it's like girl privilege in a weird way where we all, like, <laughs> we, we, we're <laughs> the one like, topic you can't speak. <laughs> well, no, I, I like, I, well, that's, I, I really love, like, you're totally right, Jared, as as usual. But in Aww. in in your assessment of it's okay to have friends that you would die for, that you would do anything for, that you would live for, even you know that's that's mm-hmm. a, a certain amount of sacrifice as well. And it, I feel like in our culture today, there is this very the two are kept very very separate. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And that I, I don't think that's a good thing, and it 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 is remarkable to me that like was it was it just different in in Tolkien's time, like in his prime, where were, were men more, more allowed to share you know their friendship, their like guy love t- to borrow from Scrubs, <laughs> I guess not to borrow from Scrubs, but but you know the that that bond between. Yeah, I think you're on to something there. I was going to, this is actually unintentionally a perfect shift into my first point I was going to bring up. Uh, This is something I had meant to do as a bit of of research beforehand, but my understanding in a very broad sense is that, and we've used the term before on the podcast, homosociality, the idea that uh, just this, this connection between men in a not explicitly romantic or sexual context, but it's something that is more than more than friendship as a scene today, I guess is mm-hmm. the best way to put it. And this is something that emerges in uh, in both the fictional and arguably the nonfiction of the time. And let's say, for time's sake, we are talking about late 19th, early 20th century, uh, late Victorian and the Edwardian era, which is essentially uh, when Tolkien grew up, is the best way to put it. And this can be seen in various various different contexts and various levels. Uh, and again, we're obviously talking about England here specifically, granted. Uh, but if you want a classic fictional level, there's the the casual mention in something like, say, uh, in uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's incredibly popular Sherlock Holmes stories, of course, where uh, at least there's more than one mention of points where Watson, as the teller of the tale, talks about how he and Holmes are walking back to their uh, 221B arm in arm very mm-hmm. casually. And that's something that would be read much differently now oh, yeah. than it would be <laughs> and read is. then. 
And there's more, there's more research and there's more about this out there. And it's the type of thing I don't want to just simply, you know, opine about it without something more concrete. But it's the type of thing I've encountered casually in just studies and reflections of the period. If we tie it into Tolkien's own biography, and I, you know, I think this is very much key, there's a real strong sense, and I'm paraphrasing Humphrey Carpenter from the official biography here, is that, uh, is that he, uh, he clearly felt much more comfortable with a tight circle of male friends. That was pretty much where he wanted to be. Um, uh, his wife, Edith, was his wife. Um, but that was apparently the only in-depth female relationship you could say that he had uh, that he had for most of his adult life. He certainly had you know people whose opinions he appreciated who were relatives and who uh, were colleagues in a broad sense. Um, the illustrator uh, uh, Pauline uh, Pauline Haynes uh, is uh, is a good example. Someone for whom he was on a okay good creative level you know back and forth with, and uh, her work is worthy of study for sure. But in terms of in terms terms of the circles, I mean, things like the Inklings, the various uh, earlier societies he was involved with, that for him felt very much like home. And I think that dynamic ultimately is inescapable to a large yeah. degree uh, in uh, in Tolkien's work. Yeah, that's one thing. I mean, as much as I um, like to rhapsodize and romanticize about male friendship in Tolkien, as I just did, it is a large part of it is driven by um, Tolkien just like not knowing how to be friends with women. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So... So he ended up finding a lot of fulfillment in relationships with men that if he had lived maybe in a slightly different era or been more comfortable with women, he wouldn't have maybe relied on as much. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Um, well, I'm interested from you guys' perspective. Uh, again, like I have so many options when it comes to positive representations of female friendships to choose from did the lord of the rings or or did the tolkien legendarium uh help Mm -hmm. you guys in creating and sustaining male friendships at all hmm as a kind of positive role model yeah or was it or or potential society you know the way that our culture exists just is that force too strong hmm I mean, speaking strictly for myself, I don't think consciously, mm-hmm. potentially unconsciously. But even then, I think there's uh, there's the fact that as much as friendship is sort of a key thing, I mean, <laughs> quite honestly, uh, there's the part of me that appreciates uh, Bilbo Banks as a classic example of a confirmed bachelor totally <laughs> on his own. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as someone who lived uh, in a solo apartment situation for almost a full decade uh, um, in the in the 2000s, uh, I, I frankly got very used to that i was very i was thoroughly comfortable with myself so uh, it's one of those cases where um you know even though even though i've had you know roommates before and of course now i'm i i I live with my partner having that that sense of solitude is kind of as as is described in such a rhapsodic way in its own right i guess Mm -hmm. is the way to put it although in the context of the story of course the idea is that it's not the story of bilbo sitting around it's bilbo getting out there and getting to meet friends companions you know people people who he ends who ends up uh, being able to you know being able to banter with Gandalf essentially you know that's a that's a rare privilege and there's a sense that informality you could argue is mm-hmm. is very key and we see that in very interesting points 
uh, throughout the entire story. And by that, I mean uh, the entire Lord of the Rings in particular. Uh, like, uh, for instance, when uh, when it's uh, when it's Pippin greeting uh, Aragorn sort of very casually and comfortably after the Battle of Pelennor Fields, and everyone's kind of surprised at how, how do, it's sort do of we, like, do oh, Do they speak okay. to kings as such? Yeah. I think it's Yorith, or it's, you know, maybe one of the captains of the guard or whatever who is like, do they speak to kings as such? in far off lands uh mm-hmm. when when pippin is like strider what's up man <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I yeah i'm going to take that moment too since i since i've gone ahead and brought up something set in minas tirith that i was thinking earlier today and i think this is a relevance to uh to Jared's uh, points that he's brought up. And there are a couple things I want to get back to as well. They, I don't want to let them escape me. But uh, something that I think, using Pippin is a very good example. Besides the, of course, friendship that Mary and Pippin have, duh. <laughs> and all yeah. that, which, of course, is very much its own sort of key thing. There's that wonderful sequence. And again, it's not it's not something that emerges in many of the adaptations. Although I think it has, I think it did turn up in the radio version of, uh, the U.S. radio version of Lord of the Rings at some point. And that is where Pippin's essentially on his own and needs someone to talk to <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, and he ends up uh, becoming friends with both Baragon I believe his name is yeah. the uh, yeah. fellow who's in yeah. the guard and his son Burgle if I remember right or is uh, is his name and I like how there's this time taken in this big overarching story about what do you do when you're on your own and you're just trying to sort of like uh, you know just sort of like you know there's that part where he where Pippin sort of confesses to himself that he feels lonely and he thinks he'll speak to the stranger just so he has someone to speak yeah. to and that in and of itself is not merely me- friendship just the idea of connection mm-hmm. but then but then this person turns out to be so just you know very friendly and generous and uh, then he also ends up speaking with uh, his son uh, later and there's this it's this nice little vibe of something like oh okay you know it's it's a it's a nice story element and nice is kind of doing a lot of heavy lifting there but it's warm i guess yeah. is the best way to put it it's very open it's very sort of you know the pressure's all around and yet there's this happening in this particular moment right there and there's a happy ending in the end yeah. <laughs> with uh, with uh, that particular story and arc and i just like that because i think i think they really do think there's a case of tolkien showing how these moments matter how something like that can matter. You know, we hear we hear all the time the idea of, you know, reach out to somebody and things like this and make sure someone's not isolated in a weird sort of way without trying to be draw some sort of moralistic lesson for the present here. I'm just merely noting that Tolkien seems to have had a very good eye for how how a initial friendship or his initial sort of uh, good connection can develop. And I think he's he's good at capturing a moment like that in as much as he's also good at showing moments of very long established friendships indeed. So yeah. I do have to interject to say I started fanning the thing that I'm drawing for this episode with a book that happened to be nearby. And the book is A Spring Harvest by Tolkien's friend, Jeffrey Bucksmith. So, yeah, that was, I started laughing. I think Oriana saw me. I did. (laughs) I was like, I gotta know what that's about. Yeah, it's just the book that his friend wrote. As soon as speaking of friendship, his friend wrote and then died and on his deathbed, wrote to Tolkien, mm-hmm. nobody else but to Tolkien, and was like, I, I forget what the note said, but it's in the movie that we watched, the mm-hmm. bio, mm-hmm. biopic, and Tolkien just goes home, and then like one of the first things he does in England after World War, after leaving World War One, is get his friend's book of poetry published. That's true so. friendship right there, is getting yeah, your, your dead yeah. friend's poetry published. Mm-hmm. And it was such a, and I think it's good to bring up 
to bring up the the context of the war and loss because there was so much loss and there was a strong sense of I, I you know the, the strong sense that there were so many people now gone that uh, you know collecting these things remembrances of uh, what the work they had and I'm I'm thinking broadly we're thinking of all the famous poets of course but also ones maybe not so famous like this and artists and other things uh, you know there's so many examples and books out there this idea of how do you memorialize those who've gone how do you honor those friendships that happened and I think that's very very vitally important for sure. Well, I mean, that's a, probably a whole episode on its own, how the war mm. would have shaped his view of friendship and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. all of this. Because um, he famously wrote something like, like, five of us went to war and only I returned, something like that. I'm really paraphrasing. That is not it. It sounds better when he says yeah. it. But <laughs> it was something like that, where all of his friends died, and then he had to go back to England and start from zero. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very true. So. And uh, bringing up the movie is a good example. Sure, it's the movie. We're talking again about the Tolkien biopic that came out earlier this year is that for all that, you know, I, I you know, had various issues with it. We all, you know, we all did in our own ways. Um, I thought it, uh, if the theme of it was to try and show that friendship has a deep role, then however much it wasn't, you know, the historical story, I thought it did a reasonably good effort with that. And I thought it was suggestive at points. And I know you and I, Jared, were sort of thinking about this, about how at one point it's uh, from his friend, the one who's featured, who does, uh, who, who they specifically feature, who does pass on and write that f- final letter, um, how there's a moment where it was kind of, it's kind of interesting. It feeds into sort of what we were talking about earlier. It could be read almost as not quite a romantic declaration, but there was very much a sort of vibe happening. It was a scene set uh, in, in college at Oxford, and uh, I thought it was actually rather well handled. It's just one of those things like, okay, you can read it one way or another, but uh, I think it sort of speaks to those kind of emotional depths that could be reached in such context, given the hothouse of college too, granted, but even so. Yeah, oh, that's a whole other thing too, is the British school system. And Mm -hmm. anyway, (laughs) don't know (laughs) enough about that to pontificate, but I will learn specifically so I can pontificate. So here's a question back to Oriana. I was racking my brain. Is there anything like a female friendship in Middle Earth at all? There's not like the only real hint that we get of any kind of female friendship is Melian and Galadriel, I feel Mm -hmm. like. Mm -hmm. And that is genuinely only a hint. Like it literally just says Galadriel thought she was cool (laughs) and Mm -hmm. hung around for a while. Mm -hmm. And that was it. (laughs) Like. I mean, oddly enough, it just sort of occurred to me that between the the last few episodes, we maybe have touched upon the only moments in general, because there is a bit of it in Aldarian and Arendis, um, a hint um, between uh, between Arendis and the Queen, for instance. But this is all in a family context, and right. there are some other things there. But yeah, it's kind of it's is so. I guess maybe a question for you is is that is that alienating in Tolkien for you or not? Weirdly, I don't find it alienating. I think because. I have, because I have been experiencing, well, you know, maybe, maybe that was why I wasn't great. Not why, but like, you know, I was not great at female friendships until I hit college. And even since then, like I have a lot of male friends, but my female friendships are extremely close and deep bonds mm-hmm. um, that are very, very, very unlike my male friendships. With a lot of my male friendships, I'm kind of a therapist. 
Um, <laughs> uh, that, because that, we're not socialized right? to talk about our emotions yeah. with other men. <laughs> so really, like, it would be great if everyone could have a Sam or a Frodo. Like, if every if every you know dude person could mm. could have a Sam, I feel like that would be great. I would love that for for them. Like I, you know, it was it wasn't until fairly recently that I realized exactly how restrictive it must be for you guys. I feel I genuinely feel really bad for you that you are not allowed not really allowed to show the depths of the emotions that you clearly have in, you know, male-only contexts. That's hmm. that it honestly breaks my heart. I can't imagine not telling my friends that I love them and, you know, how much I appreciate them and hugging them and, mm-hmm. you know, that, that just feels so essential to me. And maybe that's why I didn't feel alienated by the lack of female friendships in The Lord of the Rings is because the male friendships were felt very female. Like, I, went, I was like, oh, that's just, that's so nice. Like, that's, that's how I am with my friends. Mm-hmm. I get it. This brings to mind something that I, another thing I was thinking about beforehand, we were were talking about a very sort of positive case. Uh, This is not a negative case in Tolkien I'm bringing up, but I think in contrast to uh, the supporting warmth and love, and I have more thoughts about that later. I also don't want to take over from Jared here. It's his topic and all that. That's fine. but, um, but, uh, But I think it's vitally interesting to consider a a deep tragic friendship that uh, that uh, is at the heart. I don't want to say the heart, maybe, but is one of Tolkien's longest established uh, examples, if I remember right, um, in terms of when it was introduced in the Legendarium. And this is part of the arc of uh, Turin Tarambar in the Silmar- in the Silmarillion, Ooh, but of course yeah, dating yeah. dating back, of course, to 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 the nineteen to nineteen seventeen and onward, one of the oldest stories was was it Mablung or was it Beleg? Beleg. Uh, oh, it was Beleg. Beleg. Sorry. It was, yeah, and uh, it was. Yeah, I was about to say. I was like, wait, did I get the name wrong? <laughs> and all that. And to to elaborate on this, yeah, this is very crucial because, um, again, if you're not as familiar with the Silmarillion, a very capsule description, uh, Turin uh, in the in in the Silmarillion has evolved over time. Basically, uh, he is quite literally the character who gets no breaks because everything is. Is, uh, is basically he's 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 on a downward spiral, almost marked from birth, and there's a lot going into this uh, about why he is such a particular tragic hero. But the thing to keep in mind is this: is that while there are um, two, three, I, I need to keep in mind, two like key romantic relationships that end up absolutely disastrously in terms of depth, uh, in terms of death and depth, um, uh, to put it mildly, uh, the 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 one that I think that shows the most trauma is what happens with uh, Beleg. And the brief set of the story, for again, those unfamiliar, is that Turin is a man, not an elf. Beleg is an elf. The two of them uh, have formed a very close bond And when Turin was uh, being brought up uh, by elves in uh, in the kingdom of Doriath. And after a number of adventures, they uh, eventually form sort of, they're the head of a small group that uh, helps sort of cleanse the land of orcs and things like that and allow safe passage for people. And uh, they're sort of seen as these... Uh, it's sort of like, you know, Robin Hoodish, you could argue, but on a very much more, you know, I don't want to say elevated level, but a different kind of level in this particular context. And again, it's this tight partnership between a man and an elf. 
what happens is is that uh, the uh, the bad guys eventually get the drop on them. Most of the uh, band are killed. Uh, what happens is, is that uh, Turin is hauled away by the orcs. Beleg recovers, chases after it, um, chases after them, catches up with them, and I'm simplifying the story. But the key thing, what happens here is that Beleg frees Turin uh, and is trying to uh, is trying to basically uh, free him up from his bonds. And Turin, who's been in and out of consciousness, wakes up. Basically, he's been sort of tormented by the orcs as they've hauled him away. He wakes up. He now sees what he sees as a shadowy figure above him, assumes, oh, geez, another orc and all that. And now this one's got a knife. And so wrestles with him, grabs the knife and kills him. And kills Beleg, his very, very you know, his his extremely close friend, who's been through many adventures with him. And this, this, what's important here in Tolkien, especially in the final form of the story, the final forms, but uh, it was there almost from the start, if I remember correctly, that this is utterly, utterly traumatic. And the traumas that. Turin faces in his story, he often vocalizes them. He often just sort of like, there's things that, you know, he lets out. He's in rage and anguish. We see that when Fenduilus, um, as uh, we see that when he's pursuing Fenduilus, we see that uh, at the end of his life when he realizes what he's done and eventually leads to him taking his own life. This, what happens when he's killed Beleg, his close friend, is he, he goes catatonic. He just can't react. And he doesn't react. And if it weren't for another elf who's been freed, who sort of is able to lead Turin away and eventually get him to a point where he can finally crack that grief many, many miles and many, many days later, um, it's the sense that he would just simply just waste it away right there because it's such a profound, it's such a profound betrayal of friendship is what it is. And I think that's sort of it, the way that Tolkien portrays that is so so vitally powerful. What is the worst thing you can do for do to a friend? You could literally kill them. <laughs> you could literally, literally kill them and do so utterly unknowingly. You've done you've you've committed a terrible, terrible crime and you did so in complete ignorance. And I think Tolkien really is trying to emphasize in that moment just how utterly soul shocking that is. And I think that's why this tragic friendship throws a lot of the not tragic friendships into a good light. It's sort of like, you know, <laughs> the ones where everyone comes out all right in the end. The shape of their experiences, but comes out all right in the end uh, in a much better place. Like if I'm not feeling it, like I, I will just skip that when I'm rereading because it's it it's just devastating. Maybe shifting gears to another form of friendship, false friendships are very important in Tolkien because I think for him that's one of the biggest sins. I think Sauron is the classic example. You know, he's the one who comes in friendship. Hey, I'm the giver of gifts, you know. <laughs> And he cozens up to people and tells them lies and tells them to the elves. And then in a much different context, he does that to Arpharazon and Numenor. But we see that in a classic example is the false friendship of Wormtongue is uh, is someone there. He's someone who's prevent who's meant to be the counselor, is meant to provide Theoden with the uh, with the advice and all that. And of course, it's all it's it's. It's all false. It's all. It's not a real friendship, and I find that just very interesting too. So these these examples of friendship that aren't are as important as the ones that are. Yeah, I think we. I think that's technically honest services mail fraud in the United States. Uh, it's <laughs> deprive. It is depriving the public of the honest services of a public official by means of fraud. Hmm. Fun hmm. fact. <laughs> <laughs> The legal system of Middle Earth. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, speaking of, this is not related to friendship at all. But speaking of worm time, <laughs> yeah, hey, hey, I go got ahead. so like irrationally furious the other day at this tweet that was making the rounds, where somebody was like, 
making fun like why would you give somebody named Grima Wormtongue a job like could you tell from his name he wasn't trustworthy and I was like oh my god you guys that's not what he was called that's what the people that didn't like him nicknamed him like why <laughs> yeah it, I got I went full Tolkien nerd for a second and I had to like step back and go it doesn't matter <laughs> it really doesn't matter don't be that guy and of course you know I yell at people going like geez in the film he looks so grungy I'm like that's the film yeah (laughs) yeah yeah the film is doing something very different from the books right right so but uh, but no no I mean good to bring up I mean yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to think. Um, yeah, there, there, there are further angles to go with this, but maybe let's take it back. Let's take it back to something like The Hobbit. When it comes to Bilbo, Bilbo is in isolation at the start of the uh, story. He is respected, but you don't get a sense of any close connection. And to unpack the whole essence of friendship and how that works throughout the entire story uh, would almost be worth its own episode. But uh, what I'd like to focus in on is what happens by the end of the story, the end of the major part of the story, not the end end, although I think that's really good too, where you have Balin and Gandalf and Bilbo just sitting around Bilbo's place and they are friends and everyone's very comfortable and chatting and talking. And I think it's a really lovely moment. It's the change from, you know, Bilbo the isolated to Bilbo the now much more social, a lovely, lovely element. But I I think the the real depth of friendship, of course, comes when we see the parting of uh, Bilbo and Thorin. Mm, yeah, and uh, mm. that that's a scene that'll that's you know that's a, that's a heavy scene that gets you every time for a kid's book. And that's 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 pretty that's pretty sharp. That's a uh, you know it's a, it's it's wonderfully literary. Someone realizing on their deathbed what the true value of something is. Granted, mm. but it's handled very well, and it's handled from the point of view ultimately of the person who is left behind. When a friendship does end and uh, and you get a sense that regardless of the eschatology and the sense of what the future is like uh, in terms of the afterlife or paradise within Middle Earth, that uh, that uh, Thorin is saying goodbye pretty much permanently. He's going he's going to his his father's. He's Mm -hmm. going to his to their company and uh, and has to say goodbye to Bilbo. And of course, Bilbo is overcome and weeps. He and uh, this is, again, not the type of thing you see. To take it back to uh, to kind of what uh, to what uh, Jared was saying, not the kind of thing you often see mm-hmm. in modern uh, literary productions. I mean, if we want to bring up Marvel, we do have a sense of you know uh, some sense of grief and loss that we saw in Endgame. But the idea was that that was meant to be a very singular moment in the Marvel arc, as opposed to something like uh, this, which is just contained within its own soul story. Uh, so I think uh, I think that's um, the fact that he's able to do this in a story that's a kid's. Story story and have something on the value of friendship as he does at various points throughout the hobbit is further to the strength of the story i think further to the strength as creator that's not necessarily the bigger more adult for lack of a better term uh arcs in uh, the silmarillion stories and lord of the rings i'm just i keep circling around modern portrayals of friendship and i don't know just what bothers me about them and thinking like it's always two people two guys speaking of you know male friendship specifically it's always two guys mm-hmm. who are like you know oh we hate each other at first it's like pride and prejudice friendship and they come to <laughs> at the end they're like yeah you're my friend let's go shoot the bad guys or win this football game right it's always treated as a process of learning a lesson and there's not as many examples as in Tolkien of like what a healthy friendship just looks like mm-hmm just caring for each other and not we don't have to learn sam doesn't have to learn 
how awesome Frodo is. Frodo doesn't have to come to accept Sam. Like, he right. does over the course of the book, but there's no, like, lesson moment. It's just slow, subtle character change. And I really appreciate that, that it's not treated as immoral, because if you treat friendship as, like, a moral lesson to be learned, then it's like, well, <laughs> where's the fun in that? Right. Mm. And it's not, it's also not, you know, in Jared, you're right. There's all these examples of men having to learn to be friends while working together. It's mm-hmm. seldom decoupled from that in that like labor environment. You know, they have it's to team up to get setting. yes, and mm-hmm. that's you know that's not great. You know, you guys are allowed to be friends with people who are not your coworkers. You can meet each other <laughs> in other places, and that's. To get Ned to go back to what you were saying about Bilbo weeping over over Thorin, that is one of the things that I love about uh, all sorts of characters in Tolkien, but Sam in particular. And this gets more, much more into portrayals of masculinity rather than just male friendships. But what I love so much about Sam is that he is a crybaby. He's yeah. such a crybaby, but in a good way. He is mm-hmm. forever bursting into tears. He... He has no qualms about expressing his very strong emotions about all sorts of things. And I love that. Sam is the best. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why is he, yeah, he'll burst into tears of joy, you know, as soon as the 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 minstrel starts singing the song of, you know, the tale of Frodo. Nine-fingered of Frodo. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not treated as anything. Yeah. It's not like, oh, well, it's, yeah, of course he's crying. Yeah, yeah, it's treated, yeah. I think this only makes me think of thinking of Frodo and Sam, you know, kind of the, I don't want to say the Ur friendship, but the one that, uh, you know, by default has the most time spent on it is uh, an interesting, an interesting tiny difference in, uh, in portrayal of book versus film talking, of course, about Jackson's film is the moment where, uh, where Frodo is recovering Rivendell and, uh, for, for the first time that Frodo is conscious, you know, Sam comes in and wordlessly, you know, just uh, strokes his hand and just. Yeah. almost doesn't have the words mm. and uh and uh, and the conversation is sort of like you know just sort of like he's he finally gets the words out a little bit later and in the movie um of course famously ian mckellen told sean astin it's in the book got to hold his hand you know you got to got to have that and that's shown but the context is a little different and yet it still works in this case what happens is it's just you know sam comes in in a rush you're awake you're right there and all that whereas you know it's more an immediate sort of uh, thing whereas uh, sam almost doesn't you know can't find the words in the book initially mm-hmm. and but so it's it's a, it's a slight I don't say telling difference because I think both both reads on it are are perfectly great. But I really do like the detail that the book provides, where it's sort of like it's it's just described in a way until finally you know Frodo almost has to break the silence, and say, "Oh, hello, Sam, how are you doing?" Mm-hmm. and all that just to just to get Sam to sort of say something. I really think it was the cultural con. Like I I, I genuinely think that they just felt they couldn't do that, and maybe it was too corny, like or maybe yeah, it is. Oh, it's unbearably sincere. It's so sincere. Mm. 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 Yeah. And we we have, you know, even like, you know, production was pre 9-11, but and maybe maybe it was because production was pre 9-11. And I don't think audiences were necessarily ready for that kind of sincerity, which is, well, don't get me started on (laughs) sincerity in film. It's, It's too. There's this great essay by um this critic that 
I admire um, Gretchen Felker Martin. She wrote this this essay about seeing the Lord of the Rings movies as a young person, and I think I'm roughly the same age as her, so it would have been around the same time in our lives. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time that she had ever seen a male friendship portrayed this way on screen with like people crying over yeah. each other, or like Aragorn kissing Boromir on the forehead yes. mm-hmm. when on his when he's dying. And just breaking down in tears over that. And that's actually uh, her essay is indirectly why I picked this topic. Because I was like, yeah, that I, I hadn't never thought about it like that before. But yeah, even though the movies do pull back a little bit on some of the more overt displays of physical affection, it's still unique in the way it shows men interacting in these openly emotional ways. It's very beautiful. And there's something, too, about how ultimately there are... There are many different layers uh, to uh, to friendship. Uh, again, granted, male to male context almost almost totally uh, in Lord of the Rings that function different ways. I mean, even in a weird way, <laughs> you've got uh, <laughs> Shagrat and Gorbag there uh, in the two towers <laughs> who are you know are they friends? Well, no, one ends up killing the other if I remember right. So granted, but uh, but uh, the two of them, you know, it's it's. It, we're talking we're talking two orcs two orc captains just sort of going at each other you know they're they're terrible subordinates their work conditions things like that you know the type of thing that tolkien himself was familiar with in a military context um is what it is is uh, what i think he's specifically drawing from there and it's you know it's it's it's, it's kind of what you're talking about earlier it's 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 a work friendship granted but it, it's the type of work friendship where it's sort of like ah geez what are we dealing with now and it's like you know <laughs> granted they're evil characters and all the rest of it yet there's something recognizable there (laughs) that sort of speaks to a sense of how friendship takes on very odd forms but another thing maybe to come back to the point about sam too and the sense of emotional that is that we get a sense very early on in the story this is before anyone's left it's uh, it's right it's the night when gandalf arrives and basically tells frodo oh, i got something to talk to you about and earlier that evening we get we get sam sitting around with you know cronies and folks down there at the green dragon mm-hmm. and you get a sense that there's this you know everyone this is a social context where it's a bunch of friends but it's from the point of view of somebody who's sort of like this isn't enough for me Mm-hmm. Or some of the opinions being brought up here are kind of just like, you know, what are you talking about? And uh, and I I like that double level of it. On the one hand, Sam is exactly in the context of a wider circle of friendships, a social situation that he fully understands and is part of. And at the same time, he's just feeling a little like, you know, you know these this is not working. And part these of it are is not necessarily my people is, is right. Yeah. What it feels like. It's this sense that something's something's you know that that again ties into the wider arc of Sam. You could say that there's you know something more out there, but I think it's a recognition that uh, you know that uh, that uh, friendships function in different ways in different contexts. It's an interesting demonstration of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a friendship that's forms a circle of people who get together and have drinks. You know, I don't know if it's once a day or <laughs> once a week or however you know however they do that is not necessarily the same as people that you fully unburden things to that you you feel like they would actually respond to you. In in a in a innocent in a sincere way with which I think is interesting. One thing we I we keep sort of touching on and sort of skittering back away from is the context that you know we're all currently and we're all like we're all American I think right uh, <laughs> and if you're Canadian right um, and the way the way it looks to us I mean we were talking about that but like how it would have played differently in other eras or even other countries nowadays mm-hmm. like i was trying to research 
uh, I think I tweeted about this, like homosociality in Britain, like male friendship in Britain looks way different than it does here. Like it looks mm-hmm. way closer to Lord of the Rings friendship than than American friendship. So it's, I wonder how the book reads to other people with different definitions or constructs of of friendship. How does it, how does it play? I don't, I don't know. I mean, mm. I'm American white male. I don't know what it looks like to anybody else. Yeah. There's something there about the idea of what translates culturally, you could say, um, on different levels and over time, too. Yeah, it's a rich subject, more, the more I think about it. I suppose we've gone. Well, um, maybe we've reached a temporary end. I, 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 I'd like to note something, too, by the way, to both listeners and both of us, to, uh, all of us here, is that uh, just because we talked about a topic once doesn't mean we can't circle back on it. So, you know, there could be other friends, other times and other contexts. But, Jared, uh, maybe do you want to, is there any sort of final word on the subject for now you want to mm. wrap it up with? I played the I'm glad you're here with me card right at the beginning. That would have <laughs> been a good ending, wouldn't it? <laughs> The sentiment remains true in there and good. Yeah. No, I just, I mean, just to reiterate that, I think that is, I mean, that in a sense is just what friendship comes down to is I'm glad you're here with me. Okay, so for next time. I'd like to focus in on one of the more obscure yet crucial characters from Lord of the Rings and what he represents as much as who he is. But he's utterly memorable, a figure who features in the wider unfolding of the entire story. Arguably, without his presence at a crucial moment in the narrative, the story doesn't work out as it does. And Tolkien's choice to include him in the story is a very conscious move. But he represents part of the murkiest history elements of Tolkien's legendarium, something which Tolkien did explore both elsewhere in Lord of the Rings and in unpublished writing that later surfaced in the Unfinished Tales and the History of the Middle-Earth series. Beyond that, as maybe even more than a fair amount of Tolkien's imaginative universe shows, there's a strong sense of real-world assumptions, stereotypes, and both ancient and real history that leads into this character and the small society he leads. So for next time, I would like to discuss Ganburi Gan, the Druidane, and the native peoples, for lack of a better term, of Middle-earth. Oh my god, I thought this was going to be Tom Bombadil, but no. That was going to be Glorfindel. Holy crap. Yeah, wow. <laughs> okay, I'm glad I, glad I had faked you both out. You totally <laughs> did. Oh my god, that's so good. <laughs> I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, colonialism, imperialism, there's a lot going on here. Yeah. <laughs> there is a lot going on here in a very, very small space in Lord of the Rings itself, and the undercurrents, I mean, in, in the other writings, too. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack. There is a lot to unpack. And I, I just one of those things like a couple of months ago, I'm like, yeah, what's with this character? What and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't want to spoil where I'm going to go <laughs> with, uh, with my thoughts on this next time. But uh, but yeah, think, think of this over. These, the, needless to say, I should say, uh, and uh, we're all three of us are aware of this. There's a lot out there about uh, about, you could say, the the uh, the the colonial and imperialist society that Tolkien grew up in, mm-hmm. that he himself was representation of to a degree he was of course born in south africa and there's a lot tied up with that there is a lot going on and again there's a lot more i could say right now
now, but I don't want to play my hand. The assumptions are not necessarily what you think uh, when it comes to Tolkien, a lot of very particular political and social questions. Um, it's a case where he's not, we're not talking woke Tolkien. This is not, <laughs> not the case, but he is not, he is at the same time, he's not quite the stereotype you might imagine him to be. It's a very interesting liminal space is the best way to put it. And this can be seen in a variety of uh, different areas, but I'll say more about that next time. So there's something to think about. But yeah, Gunbury Gun. I mean, just imagining him alone, what he looks like. Uh, there's there's a lot to there's a lot to talk about there. Yes. Oh, I get to draw him then. Yeah, you do. And I, I'm looking forward to your take. <laughs> This podcast is just an excuse for me to do all the Lord of the Rings fan art I've been meaning to do yeah. for years. That's all it is. You know, if that's if that's how this works out, I'm so happy. So, okay, well, uh, we'll wrap up here. Uh, we uh, you won't hear it in the uh, in the version you're hearing now, but uh, Oriana has been having to deal with all sorts of audio flakery and things like that, and I'm she's so had to sorry. reboot a few times just so we get this done. So we're gonna like wrap up here so she can go, uh, but uh, and and not suffer it again. Any last thoughts from either of you folks? Frodo and Sam forever. Frodo and Sam forever. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we should do a shipping episode at some point, just because there's a whole lot there. We got just in terms done. of cultural impact, not just yeah. like, well, who's your OTP? Yeah. 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 No. No. I'll. I'll let you. I'll let whoever wants to take the lead on that, because uh, you, you're more the experts than I. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's all I'll say. Um, okay. So thank you again for listening. We really appreciate it. Again, to reiterate what we said at the start of the episode, thank you so much for all the feedback we've gotten. It's really nice to know that there are people out there listening and enjoying what we do. We aim to keep at it. Uh, we will uh, hopefully uh, not be too self-conscious about it. We'll just keep on plugging away. Uh, thank you again. Uh, we'll talk to you all next month. Thanks again for listening to this episode of By the Bywater. Please subscribe and rate us via your favorite podcast listening options. Episodes and show notes are at megaphonic.fm slash by the bywater, all one word. You can also message us through here. Email us at by the bywater at megaphonic.fm or follow us on Twitter at by the bywater. You can also follow us individually on Twitter and ask questions there. I'm at Vandroid Helsing. I'm at Schwinter, S-C-H-W-I-N-D-T-E-R. And I'm Ned Raggett, two G's, two T's. By the Bywater is a proud member of Megaphonic Podcast Network. Find all our fancy little shows at megaphonic.fm. We hope you join us again next time. Until then, Namarie. Namarie.